there are real hindrances that try to get in your way of getting after him. See, for, for, the, for the soul that has made Jesus the, the highest call and the, 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 the tip of the mountain, the, the, the pinnacle of, of our pursuits, everything else becomes the enemy of that. Thank you for listening to Sozo Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information on Sozo Church, visit sozospokane.com. your call to follow after Jesus but it is not easy it's better but that doesn't mean it's easy see this kind of language confuses people who want to add Jesus as a side dish this kind of attitude this kind of response is different this is not the well I just need to figure out how to balance my devotional life with my work life this is Sozo Church We're going to get back into our series in Philippians. Um, But as I've kind of been mulling over all of this this week, really Luke uh, chapter 9 verse 62 has just been in my heart. As I've been studying the passage we're in, um, I've just been thinking about the the statement Jesus made uh, in the midst of a bunch of people making excuses as to why they could not follow after him. All these people make these statements about, I'm going to follow you, but first I've got to do this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be with you, but first let me take care of this. Jesus makes a statement. He says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Putting our hands to the plow and then looking back. This idea, this call, this, this if I can use this word, this challenge made by Jesus about the, the testing of what it means to be fit. That word fit in, in Greek literally means to be well suited for, to be well placed in, to be in the right spot. So in other words, he's saying that, that this concept of, of being fit for the kingdom is, is, is the forward call of the kingdom, the, 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 the moving forward that we have in the kingdom, that the kingdom is for those who are so obsessed with what lies ahead of them that they forget about or abandon what lies behind them. And, and really this morning as we turn our attention to Philippians, I think you'll see that really uh, I wonder, to be honest, if, if Paul was kind of contemplating what Jesus says here in Luke as he writes to the Philippians. So if you've got a Bible um, or a flat screen, uh, that can get the Bible on it. We're going to turn to Philippians chapter 3. Um, Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Uh, I find it funny, actually, as I was uh, reading through Philippians uh, this week, I find it funny that the start of chapter 3, he says, finally, and he still has two more chapters to go. That's how you know that Paul was a preacher. How many times? Like, oh, we're going to wrap up now, and we got like 45 minutes more to go. I've never done that. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, uh, reading out of the ESV, says, uh, Not that I, that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, catch this please, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward 
to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Let's pray together this morning. Holy Spirit, I thank you, God, for your word and for your presence. God, I thank you that as we turn our hearts and our attention toward you, as we, as we shift away from distractions and from chaos and noise, God, to you, I thank you so deeply, God, that you meet us in that place, that you so consistently meet with us, that we're not left pursuing religious devotion apart from your presence and intimacy with you. And I I thank you, God, that your word is not simply a list of things for us to to know or to hear or to to observe or or to do, but God, rather, that the truth of of your word to us is is a doorway, is is a channel through which we can hear your voice speak to our hearts, and that's what we're after today, God. As we, as we silence all the things that distract us, as we dedicate and, and, and set aside this time to, to just be with you, God, we're asking that in the midst of, of all of, of truly, God, the noise of, of me preaching, God, that we would hear your voice, that you would speak to us and we would hear. We truly are a desperate people for you, God. We're desperate to hear you. We're desperate to receive the the grace that comes through hearing you. And we're desperate, God, to be transformed. Not not by behavior modification, not by some vain, veiled attempt to try harder, but rather, God, through an encounter with you that leaves us genuinely, truly transformed in the very way we think, in the very way we feel, in the very way we respond and process, God, that you would transform us in the deepest level possible, that our hearts, God, would no longer be hearts of stone, but hearts of flesh. Let us leave this place different than we came in. Let us be transformed by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul here um, is speaking of of an odd paradox and an odd kind of tension that's here. If I can try my best to sum up what I hear him saying is this. He's saying, "I, I have been obtained but I have not yet obtained what I have been obtained for. And not that what I seek to obtain is something that I'm able to obtain in and of myself, but I'm only able to obtain it because I have already been obtained. So that's clear. (laughs) He... He's struggling through, I think in trying to communicate something. And let me first say, before we get into all the, 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 the details of this whole idea of only being able to obtain that which we've already been obtained for and that which has already been obtained for us, uh, let me first just stop and, and make one sort of maybe obvious, but I think important point here. Paul makes it clear that in the life of the believer, in the heart of those that have been redeemed, there is a goal. 
I've confessed this before. My children, uh, my, my youngest, uh, Balencia, she's, she, well, she just had her last game. So she was in a soccer league that didn't keep score. Have you heard of these sinful things? Um, the, in a league that doesn't keep score, and in, in my kids have been in leagues where regardless of the outcome of the season, you get a trophy? I've talked about this before, I know. I don't like these. Um, and you can like them, it's fine. You're, you're, God will reveal to you your sinfulness eventually. Um, Paul says that. I'm not I'm quoting Paul. Um, no, but... But I think sometimes we, we want to equate the Christian life to that because, and this is true, that because we are saved by grace through faith, we kind of can, can come to believe that it's just kind of like a, the nobody's keeping score, nothing really matters, there's not a point, there's not a goal. And, and Paul here makes it clear, there is a goal, there is a prize, there is a purpose to this life. Well, what I need you to understand is this is a positive thing. What he's saying is that the, the, the Christian life is not just vain exercise. I don't understand. My wife's one of them and I love her with every ounce of love God has given me. But I don't understand people who run just to run. I run, don't get me wrong. If, if I've ordered pizza and the doorbell rings, I run. There's a prize, come on. There's a dude with pizza at my door. That's not sexist. I've just never had a girl deliver pizza. There's somebody at my door with pizza. That's, I'm, there's a prize. It's an upward call. I have no pizza now. I will have pizza when I get to the door. It's a good day. I think I need pizza. Um, I just don't understand running for no reason. And I think maybe sometimes some believers wonder why whether they see other believers straining and striving and pressing forward and they go, I don't really, I don't really know why they're doing that. Well, because they, they, there's a prize. There's a goal. There's something ahead of them. And what is this goal? What is this, this prize? It's, it's according to Paul, we, we actually see it in, in verse 10. I, I'm fighting the urge because I know Doug did a great job. I'm fighting the urge not to go back and re-preach the previous text because it's there. And I'm like, ooh, ooh, no. But verse 10, he identifies this for us. He, he talks about it. He, he says, I, that I may know him, who is him, Jesus, and the power of his resurrection. And I may share in his suffering and become like him in his death, that I may, in any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What Paul is saying is this, my goal what I'm straining, and, and yes, I'll use the word striving toward, is greater and more, more real and more visceral intimacy and union and relationship with Jesus. I want Jesus more than anything else. And Paul here is saying, that's what I press toward. Why does he press? Why does he exert himself? Because he has seen that Jesus is superior to everything else. I think you need to see this as a math equation. It'll make more sense as a math equation. So here's a math equation for you. Intimacy with Jesus, better than everything. Math. It's simple math. Everything. See, this is the thing. I think we, we think 
Intimacy with Jesus is better than anything. No. That's selling intimacy with Jesus short of its true value. What I mean by everything is everything. If, if we if we got a scale and we, we made this stage into a scale, we put a fulcrum in the middle of it so that it tilted back and forth, it would be very bad for a stage, but for my illustration, it makes sense. And we were able somehow to stack everything in creation on one side of the stage and put Jesus on the other. It would not be a contest. The scale would tilt toward Jesus. He is worth more than everything else. Are you hearing me, church? So Paul says, look, I, I've been obtained by him, but yet I strive to obtain him. It's, it's what, it's what A.W. A. Tozer calls the, the soul's paradox of love. It's this idea that, that I have found that which satisfies my soul. And so I will not be satisfied with anything else. And I am unsatisfied because I have found that which satisfies some of y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. Others of you are like, I'm lost, and I'm sorry. I don't know how to explain it to you any other way. Tasting of the water that satisfies your soul makes you completely unsatisfied with everything else. And it's important here because I think it can be misunderstood when Paul talks about this idea of obtaining and attaining, and we can go into a whole long grammar lesson about the difference between attain and obtain, and we're not going to do that. The difference between obtain and attain... I have to, I'm sorry, I wasn't going to. I told the worship team before, and I'm like, I'm not going to go here, but I think I'm going to go here. <laughs> They're used wrong all the time, and, and the truth is, this is one of those areas where the subtlety of the different words really plays into understanding uh, some of the deeper context that's going on in this text that I seriously do not have time to get into. But, but we need to understand that what Paul is talking about is rightly understood as obtaining, not attaining. If you go to a textbook and to understand the difference between these two words, this is the easiest way to do this. Attaining something is something that you work for, strive for, and achieve. Obtaining is something that's just given to you. So the way they describe it in textbook is this. You attain to a degree, you obtain your diploma. Do you understand the subtle difference in that? What Paul's talking about here is like, I'm, it doesn't make sense. This is where the paradox comes into. Paul, how can you, you're saying obtain, but you mean attain. He's like, no, but I can't do anything to get it anyways. So I strive for it. Do you understand the paradox that's going on in Paul's heart here? He's found that which satisfies him and nothing else will. And so therefore he's unsatisfied. It's the longing of his soul. It's the longing of his heart. Paul is not saying, he is not saying that he is working for his salvation. Paul is not, in the same sense, doubting his salvation. If, if by any means, I may attain to this resurrection. That's not, that's not what he's saying. He's, he's not doubting it. Rather, he is using language, I believe, to try to communicate to us his very personal, very visceral, very real, very intimate awareness of the struggle and the turmoil that comes into the heart of those who have set Christ as their highest goal. It's, there's a real struggle. There is a serious nature to seeking Jesus. There are real hindrances that try to get in your way to, uh, of getting after him. 
See, for, for, the, for the soul that has made Jesus the, the highest call and the, 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 the tip of the mountain, the, the, the pinnacle of, of our pursuits, everything else becomes the enemy of that. See, if all you want to do, I love you, if all you want to do is add Jesus as like a side dish to the meal of your life, then this message means nothing to you. Like, it's not a big deal. I just like scoop some Jesus, put him on the side. It's all good. But when all you want, come on, is Jesus, all the other crap on the plate is just taking up room that could be used for Jesus. Are you with me this morning? Are you understanding this at all? Am I preaching to the right people at all? He, he's, he's saying, look, I, I, there's all this stuff in the way. And so I'm pushing, I'm, I'm striving toward, there's, a, there's an upward call that I am after. There's something more valuable than everything else. And yet all of this other keeps getting in the way. It wasn't in the way before. It seemed like it was a part of it before. But now that I recognize that Jesus and intimacy with him is better and, and higher and superior and more valuable and more cherished than all this other stuff, it seems like everything is just in the way of this. It's, it's, it's hindering me. It's, it's getting in my way. I think the, the, the key to what Paul is trying to explain here, he says it in, in verse 13. He's like, I haven't, I haven't gotten to here yet. I'm not where I want to be. But here's what I'm doing. He says, I, I forget everything that lies behind me. I, I forget about it. It's, it's all gone. I think about this. I think about and I think about Jesus' call to put your hand to the plow and keep your eyes forward. I, I think about First place my brain goes is an Old Testament story of, of Lot. Lot, I don't have time to get into all the backstory. I'm just going to give you the super short Reader's Digest version. Everyone under the age of 40 has no clue what Reader's Digest is. Um, cliff Notes. Do they still use Cliff Notes? Um, the Wikipedia version. There, that's hipper. Um, Lot lives in a, in a corrupt, sinful city, and, and God sends angels to get him and his family out of this city. And he says, look, I'm going to judge this city. I'm, I'm, I'm going to destroy this city. I'm judging it, so get out of this city. And he tells him, do not look back at the city as I'm judging it. So, so Lot and his, his family and his, get out of the city, and they're going out of the city, and Lot's wife can't help but look back. And in her looking back, the Bible says literally she becomes a pillar of salt, we need to understand that when we're, when we're leaving the place where we were, it is not just something to kind of leave, but to hold a, 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 a kind-hearted attitude toward. We need to understand, I love you, I don't know who I'm talking to, but your past has been judged by God. I think we can make light. Some of us who, like me, really, really, really did a good job of sinning before Jesus, we can kind of make light of it. Because grace has been so amazing, come on somebody, we can kind of act like my past life isn't really a big deal. No, 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 no. God, is, God has pronounced judgment on your past life. It, and I'm not trying to be overly heavy here, but it's not a laughing matter really. What, how I lived prior to the, the, 
the massive train wreck of me hitting Jesus and, and his grace being imparted to me, my whole life utterly falling apart. My life prior to that was in direct rebellion and opposition to God. And he rightly pronounces judgment on that. And what he's saying here partially is, look, don't, don't think that as you put your hand to the plow, it's okay to be like, look at that great life I had back there. Lot's wife serves as a reminder to us, and I will say it as a warning to us, to understand the severity of what lies behind us. But here's the truth. Here's what I realized. Because being back on an island, I think most of you may may know, I I really put my hand to the plow, if we're going to use the the verbiage of, of the text of this morning. I really set my heart to the upward call. I really heard that upward call and really responded to it uh, when I lived on an island called Guam, which is just a ways past <laughs> Hawaii and makes Hawaii look like you know, a very developed big city. Um, it's a tiny little island, and that's kind of where I, I first quit running. That train wreck I talked about, that's where it happened. And, and being back on an island made me reminisce about that, and I remembered that moment of putting my hand to the plow, if I can put it this way, that moment where I realized the supremacy, the superiority of Jesus over all else and how, how single-minded I was. I remember, I was, I was a professional actor at the time and I, I remember being on stage, I'm supposed to go out, I'm supposed to, 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 to go out and, 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 and I'm, I'm about to enter and I'm just overwhelmed by the grace and the goodness of Jesus and I have to like run back into the back and just bawl my eyes out in a bathroom and screw up the whole play. And then like come out like, no, I totally meant to be here late. Because it didn't matter to me anymore. He mattered to me. Everything else fell away. And being back in a place that reminded me of that, truly, if I'm gonna be honest, showed me how far off of that I've come. But here's why. I don't think, this is my opinion, I don't think we look back as Christians like this. I think we do it like this. We walk, and then we're just kind of a little this way, and then it's a little more this way, and a little more this way, until I don't remember, where was I going? What was the goal? Everything comes in and clouds it. Hebrews chapter two, verse one, warns us about this. It says we need to pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift. See, we're really good about it. I'm not gonna turn around. Mm, hand of the plow. But it's really easy to just take a step to the side and then just one more. And we drift. And before we know it, we're no longer pressing on toward the upward call. We're just kind of drifting wherever. And all those things that used to seem like enemies to our souls now just seem like safer options. See, people who are sold out to this. They, they talk different than other people. They, they do stupid things. Paul says the key is forgetting what lies behind, pressing on to what's ahead toward the upward call. We kind of have been taking this backwards, if I'm going to be honest, and I kind of did that on purpose because I think we understand it better maybe when we do it this way. Jesus is the upward call. We need to understand that he's the goal. Amen? We, we press on, we, we move forward. 
but we need to understand that there has to be a forgetting of what lies behind. That word forget, just so we're clear, literally it just means to neglect. I neglect my former ways. I neglect it. I let it, I let it go. I think a perfect picture, and I do want us to, to go here this morning. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 19. Um, again, don't have a ton of time to, to give you a lot of backstory in this, but I think it's important for us to understand the context a little bit. Um, there's a, this is the nation of Israel at the time, and there is a, a prophet named Elijah. There's a prophet named Elijah, and he's kind of coming toward the, the last act of his, of his time on this stage in the theater of God, and, and he comes to that place, and God directs him, and he gives him some, some steps to do, and one of the steps that he gives him to do is he says, you need to name your successor. You need, to, you need to pass on what I've put in you to somebody else, and I wish I could go on for a while and preach about that, but I don't have time, so, so he, he calls him to, to call this guy named Elisha, and if I screw up their names, Grace. God's mean to preachers when he makes two people who are in the same story, one Elijah and one Elisha. Man. So God's called Elijah to call Elisha to follow him. And here's the story we, we pick up. It says, so he, this is a Elijah. So Elijah departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. So, so here's what we need to understand here, just so we kind of get the picture. Um, first off, let's understand that in this day and age, having one ox was a big deal. Let alone a, a yoke, a pair of them, two of them together. That was a big deal. Elisha comes from a family so well off, they got 24. They got 12 pairs. And Elisha is not your typical spoiled rich kid. He's actually out working. And not only is he working, but, but this idea that, that, he was, that he was with the 12th, it's a cultural way of saying he was leading them. The way they would work, they wouldn't be in a straight line this way. They would set up at an angle and the leader would be the last one and they would all be in, in kind of a diagonal row so he could kind of keep his eye on them and make sure he's directing them as they plow through these fields, which, oh, by the way, that means they had fields. So they're really doing well. And he's kind of leading them. He's kind of directing them. Why I think this is important is we need to understand that was Elisha's life, Okay? This is what he'd been trained for his whole life was, was to be a, a lead plowman, take over the family business. Latter part of, of verse 19 says, Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. This was, this was the outer robe of Elijah's wardrobe. It was the, the identifying marker of his position, of who he was. They didn't have photo IDs back then, so you kind of knew people by their clothes. We still do this. When any new people at church, you talk to your wife or your husband as you left, you're like, I met this guy, he had like a, a shirt on. Did you meet that guy? Yeah, like a shirt with a thing. Nobody else has done that, just me? His, his, 
His cloak, his, in some translations, says mantle. It was a thing he wore that, that represented, and in a certain sense, it seems from the text here, supernaturally carried something beyond just being clothes. He throws that on him. It was known at the time. What he was saying is, you, you're gonna come be my disciple. You're gonna come be my assistant. You're gonna come live with me. I wanna pass this down to you. I know you, you have an idea of the path your life is gonna take, but I'm calling you to another path. Verse 20 And he, that is Elisha, left the ox and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and catch this please, took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. This is an unusual response to an unexpected and an unearned calling. This, this, is, this is crazy what, what Elisha does here. Let's, let's just walk through this real fast. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this. I, I just wanna kind of use this to tie this all together and hopefully point us in a direction as we move toward responding. Elisha was called because God called him. Elisha was called because God called him. Elisha had not spent his days learning how to be a prophet. He was untested, he was unproven, he was truthfully, in all reality, from all ways we can tell, utterly unqualified to be Elijah's successor and assistant. So why was he called? Because God said so. We need to settle this once and for all. You are called because God called you. God did not look down through the corridors of time and go, man, if I could just convince him to be on my team, I think I might win. This is not like team captain, team Iron Man, whatever. Like, this is not like, let's try to get the better team on one side. And God's like trying to convince people to follow him. I love the way Elisha even responds to him. He's like, whatever, dude. He's like, let me go back and take care of some things. Like, sure, whatever. Elisha was not called because of some great potential he had. Everything he gets, everything he does in his whole ministry is supernaturally done through him. Elisha is called because God called him. Period. I love you. You were not called because you could add something great to the kingdom of God. The only thing you added to your salvation was your need of it. not qualified. He's simply called. His response to that call, however, is absolutely mind-boggling. He gives up. He abandons his family. He leaves what is probably, we talked about this earlier for a little bit because I got ahead of myself, he, he leaves what is probably a very lucrative career he could have running the family business, probably left a significant amount of influence in the community. This was stupid. Can we just level, just let's get to the point. This was dumb. 
Elisha, I mean, come on, you could, you could really serve God with that money. You could support missionaries, and you could build orphanages, and, and, you know, with your influence in the community, you could really get some bills passed that could really make, you know, the temple kind of more important in people's lives and, and righteousness established in our day. Great, those are all fantastic things, except Elisha's not called to that. He's called to be a prophet. His response is ludicrous unless you understand that what he was called to because he was called to it was superior to all that. Sure, he could have done good, but he couldn't have fulfilled the call of God in his life as a plowman. I don't know who said it first, but I, I love the statement that the enemy, of, the enemy of great is good. It's what I was talking about earlier. When, when Jesus is the highest and he's the goal, everything else becomes an enemy of that calling. And Elisha says, I, I, I gotta do this, I've gotta go. His response of, of, of literally destroying what was there is ridiculous. If I can kind of be mean for a second, it was wrong. He destroys it. He sacrifices it. He, he, gets, he gets rid of the way out for him. I believe what Elisha was doing, personally, this is my, my opinion, my understanding of what he's doing is this. He, 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 he receives the call. He gets it. He says, oh, this is it. I wonder, personally, if Elisha wondered his whole life if there was more than just plowing. There's something in his heart. I don't know. We have no real, this is where we meet him. We don't really know a whole lot more about his past, which that's a whole nother message we could preach. Your past doesn't matter. Hello. The call comes and I love, he runs after him. It's not, there's no hesitation. There's no hint of him kind of pondering it over or wondering what the salary package is like. There's none of that. Simply Elisha running after Elijah. And this is, this, is where, this is where my brain goes. This is where, how I see it going down. He's running after him. He's ready. He's, he's running after him. He's going. And then he stops and he goes, no, 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 no. That plow is still there. That yoke and those oxen are waiting for me. So he had an option. He could have gone back to dad and said, hey, pop. Uh, thanks for the offer, the family business. I mean, it's a great business. I really like it. It's fantastic. It's wonderful. But you know, I, I got this opportunity. I need to kind of see what happens with it. So here's what I'm thinking. I'll park the Porsche in the garage. We'll, we'll lock it up. We'll, we'll kind of fill the house with mothballs. The mansion you gave me, we'll, we'll fill it up and we'll kind of, you know, put some drapes over it so that everything's nice in there. And I'm going to go try this, this, this profit thing out. But, you know, if it gets hard or if it gets difficult or if I don't really like it, I'll just kind of come back. I'll keep the key, you know, latchkey kid. I'll keep it with me and I'll come back if it's ever there. He knew that was in his heart. So what does he do? Using our metaphor here, he fills the Porsche full of gas, lets it drain all over it, runs around the house with some diesel, lights a match and sets it on fire. Because he knew if that was waiting behind me, come on, look, it is a superior call to follow after Jesus, but it is not easy. It's better, but that doesn't mean it's easy. See, this kind of language confuses people who want to add Jesus as a side dish. 
this kind of attitude, this kind of response is different. This is not the, well, I just need to figure out how to balance my devotional life with my work life. I gotta figure out a way to kind of make, make job me work with church me. I'm sorry, am I bothering somebody? <laughs> Nobody else ever struggled with this? And what Paul is saying in Philippians and what Elisha does here in 1 Kings is this. There is no separation anymore. I destroy all of it because this is better. And all this other crap is just getting in my way of that. There's no balance. There's no, there's no finding the right mix of these things. It's all in. It's no to everything else. It's, it's abandoned. Forget. Again, in Hebrew, we t- or in, in Greek, we talked about this. Forget means to neglect it. I'm just going to let it rot and die. But this is the key, I think. No has to be said. Let's just settle that right now. No has to be said to the past. No has to be done. There, you you got it. No is important. All the parents said amen, right? No is important. No, in order for it to be effective, must be very quickly and very, I'll put it this way, violently followed up by a superior yes. You can, I love you, even the most disciplined one among us can only say no for so long. You have to follow it up with a superior yes. Elisha does not set fire to his yoke and boil his ox on top of it and then sit there and stare at the coals. Hello. He does that and then he follows after Elisha. He says, no. Paul here puts it this way. He, he forgets what's behind, but then what does he do? He presses on. See, the problem is we're really good at a one-time no. And we do it at church and we do it crying in front of someone and blow snot all over the floor and be all awkward. But the problem is that no is the first time you said no. You're gonna have to say no about, scientifically speaking, 47 billion more times. That's a statistic, it's true. (laughs) Abraham Lincoln said 87% of all statistics on the internet are true, so it's fine. Um, (laughs) Some of y'all are just kidding. They're like, what? How did Abraham Lincoln know about the internet? Um, You'll get there. Which brings us back to where we started. Jesus is superior. He's better. Do we need to put the math math equation back up there? Jesus is better than everything. We're back around to where we started. I press on because he's better. I have been obtained, therefore I strive to obtain what I was obtained for, even though I can't obtain it. Unless I've been obtained, which I have been obtained, so I strive for what I have been obtained for, because I have not yet obtained what I was obtained for. Though I cannot obtain it, I must obtain it through being obtained. Which I was only called to because I was obtained. Are you with me this morning? (laughs) He's better. I will, I, will, I will waste every breath I have if I have to trying to convince you he's better. He's not easier. He's better. He's better. I'm not, it's easier to just turn the TV on. 
Oh, Pastor Mark's against TV. No, I'm not against TV. But when all you want is him, TV's in the way. It's easier to just turn the TV on than to, than, than to get alone, open up my Bible and pray and seek God. Come on, it's easier. Oh, let's get real here. It's easier. Come on, it's easier to just run out and put crap on a credit card than to hold my finances to a place so that I can be obedient to the Lord, to give to what he's called me to give to and, and serve others and be generous with my time, talent, and treasure. It's, it's easier to just fill up my schedule full of crap that doesn't matter than to make time for other people. Come on, it's easier to just get along with people than to tell them they're sinners and they need Jesus. It's easier to just jump online and look at pornography rather than building intimacy with my spouse and have a genuine marriage that can stand the test of trials and difficulties. It's easier to do all that, but it's not better. Easy doesn't mean better. Easy usually means cheap. We have to see intimacy with Jesus as better than everything. Elisha did. He got rid of his way out. He got rid of his way back. My question to you this morning is, what do you need to say no to? What, what way out is there left for you? And again, this is, not a, this is the thing. I, as a youth pastor, I preach these kind of messages and filled altars full of kids crying. The problem is it's not a one-time thing. If you could come to the altar, cry once and leave, this would be great. This idea that somehow if the anointing is strong enough, it'll break the yoke and I'll never struggle again is wonderful and beautiful and a lie. You need Jesus now and you need him in five minutes from now. And you need to say no now, and you need to say no in five minutes. And you're probably gonna have to say no a whole lot more times. But listen to me, that no needs to instantaneously be followed up with a yes. No to that, yes to him. When temptation comes, when, 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 when the hand is on the plow and you're moving forward and you feel that, that tendency to drift, it's not just saying no to drifting, it's keeping, come on, it's keeping our eyes set on the upward call. Come on, he's worth it. He's better. He's better than everything. And stuff doesn't always change overnight and things don't always turn around in an instant, but come on, it's better. It may have taken you, listen to me, I don't know who I'm talking to. It may have taken you years to drift to where you are. Don't expect that you're somehow instantly gonna be able to just pop back. But let's turn our eyes back, come on. If drifting happens slowly, sometimes turning our eyes, getting back on happens slowly too. It's okay to not be okay. But it's not okay to stay there. Your past has, listen, I don't know who this is for. I heard it earlier and I was disobedient. I get to, I get to be obedient now. I don't know who this is for. Your past does not matter. Your past does not matter. I think that's for a couple different people here because this, however bad you screwed up, whatever mistakes, whatever failures, whatever shortcomings, whatever utter and total blunders you have had in your life, they don't matter. Get those things that are behind. Press on toward the upward call. You were called because you were called. Not because of anything you did. 
The standard is Jesus, you failed. So did everybody else. I'm not up here because I figured stuff out. I'm up here because I'm called to be up here. That's it. I think it's for a couple people because I also think there's somebody else here who you think, I love you, I love you, and you're actually harder to talk to, if I'm gonna be honest. You think you got your stuff together well enough that now you can be used. Hear me, your past doesn't matter. You think if you somehow sweep all the broken pieces under the rug and hide in the trees, that somehow God is gonna use you now. The reality is your brokenness is a part of God seeing, of people seeing God's grace in your life. I love, I love the Christian statement. You know, people say, God made you. God doesn't make junk. That's true. But God also doesn't use anything that's not broken. So your brokenness is what qualifies you. This morning, I just want to ask this simple question. What, what, what do you need to say no to? What in your life needs to be said no to? What's clogging your intimacy? It may not even be sin. It might be. For some of you, it might be. There may be some stuff you need to repent of and you need to turn to Christ and you need to let go of. But I'm talking about, I'm talking about, this is is where God's been putting his finger on my heart. Worthless things. Not worthless things. Just things that are worth less than him. What do you need to say no to? We know what we need to say yes to, amen? It's him. That part's not confusing. That part's the same for all of us. Here's what I need you to understand. Let's let's stand to our feet. I think this is important. What is crazy and ludicrous and wrong, and, and if I can use a word that maybe bothers you, sinful in one season is completely justified in another. Here's what I mean, and I am landing this plane, I promise. That's why I had you stand up, it makes me talk quicker. If Elisha, two days earlier, would have killed his oxen and cooked it and boiled it and given it to everybody, it would have been stupid. Can we agree on that? Two days earlier, dude, 10 hours earlier, two minutes earlier, he would have been being stupid. But in that moment, in that moment, that was the only, that was the only wise, smart, good, righteous thing to do. Listen to me, there, there may have been things in other seasons in your life that were completely fine that are not fine anymore. There may have been things in your life before that were okay to not say no to. And now, right now, in this moment, at this time, in this place, for this season, God's saying, no, that's a no now. It's time to sacrifice it, boil it, and give it away. I don't know what that is for you, but it's for somebody. And then my last, my last, please say yes. Say yes to Jesus. 
You can't keep saying no. No by itself does not work. Take it from a former addict. No only works like one time for 10 minutes. Say yes to him.